Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help Oh my gosh, this was probably one of my favorite books of the year. Caitlin Moran's book, More Than a Woman, made me laugh, made me cry. I like fell in love with her and I'm excited that she's going to be at my book club on October 6th. And I basically can't wait for y'all to listen to this episode, but mostly to read the book. So a little more about Caitlin. She is the author of several books, including the best-selling book, How to Build a Girl, How to Be Famous, Moranifesto, Moranthology, How to Be a Woman, the runaway British bestseller, and now More Than a Woman. I hope you enjoy hearing from her. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. (laughs) It is my absolute pleasure. It is true. Moms don't have time to do anything. I'm presuming yours are probably doing something dangerous in the kitchen. I don't even know what mine are doing. I'm just like... (laughs) They made it this old and they're not dead yet. I've got to presume I'm doing something right. I have the perk of being divorced. So they're with my ex-husband right now. So I, I, I assume that they're okay, but they could be burning up the kitchen, just not in my house right at this moment. Okay, so you've <laughs> got to tell me, like kind of, I've been married for 25 years and like, you know, obviously divorce, traumatic and difficult and all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I am so jealous of my divorced female friends because when the kids are gone with their dad, they're gone. Like that time is yours. Like that seems like a considerable upside on the whole financial, emotional heartache thing. Like kind of, that's a definite up, isn't it? It is a definite up, but you know, I don't know. I have a teenage daughter like you and, you know, she FaceTimes me every 20 minutes or something crazy. And, you know, she already forgot all her underwear. You know, it's always something. So it's not like it's ever done. I'm still coordinating everything. They're just oh, not right here. How often do you have this conversation? They go, mom, where are my shoes? You say in the coat cupboard. They go, I've looked there. You go, look again. They're definitely in the coat cupboard. And then 30 seconds later, you hear her. Oh yeah, they are. It's like, <laughs> probably the first time use your eyes yeah we have a lot of where is my phone you know panic and now the like find my iphone 
ding is constantly going off more than the phone is the find my iPhone ring. So and often, nine times out of 10, when they can't find their phone, they're sitting on it. You'll be on the sofa and then you, you have to get up and it's hard to get up once you get to 45. Like I find it quite effortful. I'm like, Oh, it's going to be a bit of a job to get off the sofa. And then I'm looking everywhere and then they stand up and it's underneath their bum and they're like, Oh, here it is. Totally. I know. I sit down and I read books on the bed with my son. And he's like, no, no, not this Mr. Men book. I want that one. And I'm like, oh gosh, I've got to stand up now. <laughs> like, can I hold on to the bunk bed? If I, if I hold on to the bunk bed with my left hand and pull myself up, will my knees hurt less? <laughs> yeah. No, you need some advanced warning for that. Like I like to be told a good 10 minutes before I've got to stand up. I need to prepare for it. Like some kind of Olympic athlete, like kind of, I've got to make all the oof sounds. Like it's exhausting. Yeah. Do I do the rollover, try to get up on my side or should I just go straight up? Sometimes if I pull my knees together, I find it hurts less. I'm trying everything new just to stand up. <laughs> I know. When you tell younger women, this is what you've got to look forward to. They're like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. They're kind of, they're, they can spring off a chair and go and dance. It's like, yeah, I can't do that anymore. So you enjoy it while you can. Ladies. And we're not even that old. I feel like we're the same age. I'm about to be 44. You're similar. 45. Yeah. 45. Yeah. So it's not like we're 80 year old women sitting having this conversation conversation. <laughs> it's like it happens really fast. But it's because you spend so many years hunched over breastfeeding and then hunched over a laptop that actually standing up is quite a rare event and you just lose that ability quite quickly. It's true. But you know, to your question about how great it is, you know, the perks of divorce here, your chapter on when your kids are like, go to school, what's it, what did you call it? It was so clever. The whole thing was like amazing. And how you're basically a drug addict beholden to your children that oh, called the hour of missing children, like could not have been more apt. I like read it. I underlined it. Then I printed out some pages and I read it again. It's amazing. It's so good and so true. And no one's thought of it that way. And it seems so obvious. Tell me about this whole thing, the drug addict model, yeah. even the well, Superman superhero model, all of this. Yeah. Well, cause it's so weird, like kind of, you know, as a, as a female writer and stuff and writing about being a woman, like kind of when I actually look around at the amount of stuff that's written about motherhood, it'll either be practical advice, like kind of this is how you can put them to sleep and make them have this mashed carrot, or it'll be a traumatic memoir about how painful a birth was. I've done both those things, so that's fair enough. But like no one ever writes about like the emotional, creative, psychedelic, physical, druggy aspects of being a mother, like it's a crazy thing. And it's because it's women. And like, and in the years where you can remember what it's like, you're too busy being a mother. And then like, you know, by the time you'd have time to write about this, then you've forgotten it because you forget everything. But it just really occurred to me that when my kids were little, that like, I just couldn't wait for them to leave. Like, cause it's just, you need to go to school so I can do literally everything before you come back. You're already not at school long enough for me to do everything I need to do. So I'm, I'm, I'm working real fast here. And then within two and a half hours of leaving, I'd find myself as I go to the toilet and then I'd find myself without even consciously thinking about it, getting into their little bed and like sniffing where their head had been on the pillow and like picking up a little toy that now suddenly seems so sad now a child isn't playing with it and kind of being really tearful and going, I miss them, like physically miss them. Like I need to smell them. I need to touch their stuff. And I just started thinking like, this is like our kids are our drugs like kind of we are physically addicted to them it is a chemical process you know getting pregnant is a chemical process you know breastfeeding you know kind of like growing a baby giving birth is all these oxytocin and all these hormones and estrogen and all this stuff and that continues all the way through motherhood like when you hug your baby or your child or even your teenager you sniff them and you get high and relaxed off it so when they're gone like after two and a half hours you're like you are like a junkie just clucking, going, 
need to smell the baby smell, like feel really tense now, just need to sniff the baby. And we find ourselves doing this. And, you know, again, so little is written about the weirdness and the wigginess of, you know, the, the emotional kind of aspect of being a mother. And I was just thinking, like, it, obviously, if men got pregnant and had babies, we would have movies about it all over the shop. Because it's basically like Alice in Wonderland. Like, you know, you, you take on this magic substance, sperm, and then your body changes, you grow an extra organ, you've suddenly got these superpowers, like, you know, you can stay up for five nights straight looking after a baby and then get your work done. All you want to do is save the kids. Like, you're utterly selfless. Everything is about saving the kids. And I was like, why aren't there any films about this? Like, kind of, there's no films about what it's actually like, this psychic quest that you go on as a mother. And I suddenly went, hang on. This is basically the plot to all superhero movies. Like the superhero takes on this magical substance, in our case, sperm, in their case, like a radioactive asteroid or gets bitten by a spider. Then their body changes and they take on all these, they suddenly they, instead of producing, like uh, we produce milk, they produce web out of, their, out of their wrists and they're suddenly strong and superhuman and all they want to do is, in our case, save the baby and in superheroes' cases, save mankind. And also the other thing is with all superheroes is that humankind having been rescued by a superhero over and over again is never grateful. You are a secret superhero. You never get the thanks. All of New York doesn't go, thanks the Hulk for saving us. Like you get no credit at all. And that's being a mother. Like you're, you're constantly saving the world over and over again. And the kids never go, wow, that must've been hard. Well done. So I realized that Hollywood has basically taken the whole story of motherhood and just given it to usually teenage or young white men and made it superhero movies instead. They've just carefully disguised a couple of the little details and they're telling our story with, with Spider-Mens and Batmans. And that's not fair. <laughs> we did that. <laughs> that's our story. <laughs> Co-opting the story of motherhood. Mm. Marvel Comics, watch out, lawsuit pending. <laughs> they have appropriated the thing we do. It's so unfair. It's so funny. But your whole thing about like the chemical and the smelling, I mean, I literally posted on Instagram like two weeks ago, the last time my kids were gone about how I, I picked up my daughter's like little fluffy pink slippers at the bottom of the stairs and just like, sadly, and also to your point about things left at the bottom of the stairs when I'm home, like with my, just my husband, it's like, I have to carry the stuff upstairs. But anyway, and I like took them into her bedroom and like plop them down. And it's just like the saddest feeling. And yet as soon as they come back, like within a minute, it's like gone. And I'm like, okay, when are they going yet? <laughs> Literally that, like the process of being particularly a mother is constantly either saying, go away or come back. Like that's it. And the only other people who do that are shepherds with their sheep. It's that constant, go away, come by, come back, go away, come back again. That's what we are. We're shepherds just telling our job to go away and then come back. Mommy misses you. So this is, I just wanted to read what you wrote at the beginning of this chapter. You wrote five hours. That's all it takes. Just five hours. At 8.30 a.m. I am desperate for the children to leave home. By 1 p.m. I miss them again. This is the push and pull of young children, wishing them away, wishing them back again. It's either too much or never enough. Parenting small children often makes you feel like Richard Burton married to Elizabeth Taylor. She drives you to distraction when you're with her. Always wanting things, always arguing, always creating drama. But every time you get divorced, you end up staring out at the window saying, you know what? I miss that crazy bitch. It's no fun without her. And of course... <laughs> Both your child and Elizabeth Taylor are the most beautiful things in the world. And then you say, I leave my laptop to go to the loo. And afterward, without even realizing what I'm doing, I find myself wandering into the girl's bedroom like a lovesick homing pigeon. <laughs> right? And that's it. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the whole thing about parenting is none of it makes any sense at the time. It doesn't work. Like all the way, particularly with small children, you're going, this doesn't work. 
but yet you make it happen every day and you just never really properly make sense of it. So that was one of the pleasures of being a writer and my job is to think about this stuff and write it down, being able to go, right, women with small children, I see you, I know what you're going through, I'm going to put it in a book. So because you don't have time to do that, but that's my job. So I'm going to do that for you. <laughs> I know you mentioned Jerry Seinfeld in your book and with the whole, you know, men are not really thinking about anything. They're just wandering around picking things up. And that's like, literally there's, that's the end of the inner dialogue. But I feel like you are like the female Jerry Seinfeld. You are so funny in terms of like all the observational humor and a new way of thinking about everything. And I was just like, oh, this is perfect. You're like the Seinfeld for women. It's perfect. Oh. Not, not that he's not for women, but you know. I will take that. Thank you. Well, I just, I mean, one of the you know reasons that I write what I do, the TV shows and the movies and the books and stuff, is that so much of women's lives just isn't written about. Like, we're too busy doing it at the time. And still, the things that are thought to be women's things and a women's world, it's like, it's a combination of boring and so ordinary, there's no need to write about it. That seems to be the general sort of cultural feeling. It's like, no, this is, we are literally making the people that, will populate the earth like kind of without us it all just ends quite quickly like kind of this is there is no bigger job on earth than being a mother and making children inside you and then just getting them to adulthood without them falling off a cliff we deserve a couple of books about that like kind of this is we're really busy we've worked really hard why doesn't anyone just turn around and go i see you thank you I feel like you pointed out in your book so many times all the other books that should have been written that weren't and you were like trying to tackle them all, like even about caring for aging parents and what it's like to suddenly be in that role and like, why are people not writing books about this? And like, this is a huge life shift that everybody has to deal with and yet nobody's really talking about it all that much. Totally. Well, I mean, the weird thing when your parents start getting frail and then when they start dying is that like you suddenly become top of the family tree. Like they have been the matriarch and the patriarch and you are the child. And when they get frail and ill and then when they die, like they become the children, you're looking after them and suddenly you've got to climb to the top of the family tree and you're suddenly the matriarch in charge of the rest of the family. And also it's, you know, I don't know if it's your experience, but I've generally found that it's my female friends that have to go and look after the aging parents. For some reason, brothers are just like, oh, you're better at that, or I'm too busy. And you're like, like well, I'm not busy. But they're just kind of like, oh, no, it feels like that's a woman's thing. Like, kind of, you should deal with that. So you get this whole, you know, there's all these, you know, we talk about it in terms of phenomenon, like sort of sandwich carers. So it's very common to have small children and ailing parents at the same time. And then you're still trying to be a human being with a job and, you know, and a relationship and friends in the middle of that. And we are just squeezed. And we are extraordinary. We, you know, we deal with this and no one notices it and no one thanks us and no one pays us. And so the very least I could do is just, I've just felt constantly when I was writing this book, I always have this thing that I'm just putting my arms around women going, mate, this is hard, isn't it? Like kind of, I see you. I'm going to, I'm going to write down what you're doing so people know how brave and brilliant you were at this time. I see that as my job to, to just say to women, I see you. You're amazing. You're doing so well. Carry on. I feel like this is the book I want to give to like every girlfriend that I have. Like it is so spot on. And I feel like being in, in our mid forties, like, you know, there's suddenly no guidebook. Like we don't, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. I mean, even, and I have to say your book was so funny and like, I was laughing out loud at parts, but then when you went into all the struggles you're having with your daughter and her eating disorder and over, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it. So then I'm like, like crying over your book. I couldn't believe it. And all the stuff you've had to go through because every parent has something, right? That they're out of control with their kids and all you want to do is like take on the pain yourself, but you can't. 
And that's where it goes wrong as well. So like the, I mean, it's, you know, it's so great getting to 45 because you can look back and go, what did I make mistakes? How could I have learned? Is there any knowledge I could pass on? And with my daughters, so I was, I would say briskly, badly parented. My parents, people ask me what my parents' parenting technique was. And I say it was basically that of salmon. They spawned extravagantly, they laid all their eggs, and then they just swam away. So my parents had eight kids in very quick succession, and then that was it. We were not parented again. And so I cobbled together a personality based mainly around watching classic musicals starring Judy Garland. And what Judy Garland taught me was that you just, whatever your problems are, you stay cheerful, you crush all your bad emotions down, and you just crack on and do things. And that has worked very well for me and got me to where I am. But as a parent, that became a weakness, because if you've got girls... or boys but I've got two girls who are sad and anxious and you keep saying making a joke or kind of like singing a silly song or kind of come on just crack on just crush all your emotions down and it'll all be fine there comes a point if they are very sad and very unhappy and very anxious where that becomes quite dangerous because well in my daughter's case I mean metastasized into an eating disorder it was like you know, I realize now that's kind of like a communication. It's like, if you are not taking this unhappiness seriously, then if it became a medical thing, like then you will hear that I am sad. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, for the first year and a half of her illness, that I was scared of her sadness and her anxiety and her depression. I was trying to make it go away. I was just saying to her, come on, just make yourself better. And she couldn't. And that was a huge thing that I had to learn to sit down and go, I'm not scared of your sadness. I'm not scared of your depression. I'm not scared of your anxiety. We're going to do this together. Do you need to hear me say that I love you no matter what is happening here? I'm going to say that and we're going to do this together. And once I learned that, then she started to recover. And now she's fully well, touch wood, and incredible. But that was another reason why I wanted to write about it in the book, because I think particularly for people of our generation, eating disorders were quite secret and shameful. Any mental illness was not spoken about in our generation. But her generation, they don't have that stigma. They talk about it. And when I started to write the book, she was like, please write about my illness. I want you to be able to put that advice in there for other parents. You would be able to help. Like kind of, it's not a secret. It's not shameful. I was ill. It was the same as breaking your leg. And you would want to put advice for how to treat a broken leg in a book if you knew how to do that. Then it's exactly the same here. See if you can help other people. But it was, it was definitely the hardest thing that I have done without a shadow of a doubt in my life. Those three years, three and a half years were brutal. And I was frequently on my knees with it because you're so racked with shame. And if you don't know how to help your kid, there is no failure like a child that won't eat. That's the most fundamental thing that we want to do. As soon as your baby's born, you feed it. And to suddenly have a child that's going, no, I will not eat. It just, it's, it's just like being electrocuted constantly. You can't handle the pain of it and the worry of it. So, um, so thankfully we had a happy ending and I wanted to write about it because also when I was trying to find books about eating disorders, everyone that I found had a sad ending. Like kind of they were, they were, she didn't recover. I'm still ill. And I was like, I, if I, if you are lucky enough to have a happy story, put that out there and give people hope because God knows you need it if you're dealing with it. And if anyone out there is dealing with it, I absolutely salute you. And there's a book by um, a woman called Eva Musby, which gives you scripts of how to deal with an ill child, things that you need to say. You can't parent them anymore. You have to be a mental health professional. And she gives you scripts of what to say. And the transformation when you say the right things is extraordinary. So I would heartily recommend that if anybody's unfortunate enough to be going through that right now. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's the thing with, with parenting, really. It's like whatever gets thrown your way, you have to adapt. 
right? I just, I interviewed a woman whose daughter was born with developmental disorder. And she was like, well, then I had to learn how to become an occupational therapist, right? You just, and as you're saying, like you then had to become a mental health professional. Like you just have to, whatever your child needs, you have to like learn that skill set, and that's it. That's all you, you have to do. You can't even think about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the state of being a parent is it's the one thing you cannot walk away from and you do it every day without a break. Like every day you have to turn up and do this stuff. There are no days off. Like kind of it's, it's every day for the rest of your life. There's a bit in the book where I talk about how before you have kids, you have no conception how long it will take. Like you're just kind of like, I'm sure I'll cope with it. And then you get like five years into it and you're like, this is going to go on forever. There's one bit where I go, if I now type the word long, and I just put so many O's that it filled the entire book, an entire book just full of O's, long. That's still not even one thousandth of how long it takes to be a parent. It's, it's so incalculably long. So yeah, it's an endurance, it's an endurance sport parenting. <laughs> I know, I loved that. I was just thinking you should have like this little companion piece where you literally put just the O in the whole book, you know. <laughs> days when I was writing the book, I thought, could I just keep my finger on the letter yeah. O and that could be the book? Because I could finish that quite quickly. Cut and paste, bang, we're done. But no, I put other words in there as well. There are 87,000 other words other than the word long. <laughs> Well, you also had so much, and I'm, I'm, and thank you. I feel like I didn't properly acknowledge your talking about your daughter, but thank you for sharing it. Thank you to her for sharing it, and thanks for offering up your story, which is quite personal and emotional to help other people. I mean, I think that's the biggest gift we can give others as parents, as women. Just sharing our stories is like the key to sanity for everybody and helping others. It's just like all we can do. It's literally, if you're going to go through that, then what's, you know, what is the one good thing that you could do that would turn negative into a positive? Just tell people what you learn and just hope that you make, make their illness one day shorter, make one day a bit better. Like if you're doing that, then, you know, it's not worth it, but at least you've managed to find something good in, in the, the horror. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank her too. I mean, it's really beautiful of her to share it. But back to the funny stuff for a second. You also wrote about marriage, particularly long-term marriage in a more like brilliant, funny way than I've read about ever, especially the fact that like people don't talk about their marriages. And like, once you're in a marriage, you just sort of stop talking about it. You wrote, you have become replete and also silent now. Once the door has closed on the marital house, no reports can emanate from it. If the marriage is good, then the marriage must also be silent. That is one of the rules. You do not gossip. You do not share. A good marriage is mysterious to everyone around it. What happens in there? Who are those people who walked into it on their wedding day and then pulled up the drawbridge? If a marriage is successful, you walk in there in your teens, 20s, or 30s, and then only come out again in a coffin. The partner who outlived you is standing there, waving goodbye. And then you said, for we don't write novels about long and happy marriages. We don't have big blockbuster stories on how to raise children. We don't show the endless everyday business of domestica. We have no template for that. Right, like kind of, you know, again, when I sort of started thinking that, so this is a sequel to the first book and how to be a woman, which is about your younger years and making yourself. And when I finished that, I thought, that's it. All the hard years are done. The rest of it's going to be really easy. I know everything. I've put it on this book. I am done. And then 10 years later, you're like, no, no one talks about middle age. Like kind of like, particularly since the, you know, the book came out, like kind of, you know, we know about younger women's lives now that we've got girls, we've got Fleabag, like kind of, you know, it's all about hot messes and masturbation and pubic hair and sort of, you know, having to get an abortion and bad love, love affairs and stuff. We know quite well what a young modern woman's life is like now and the problems and joys of that. But then suddenly it just stops. If you are in a successful relationship, you know, I'd walk down the street and you go past every single door and you're like, 
what is going on in there? Like, there are adventures in there as epic as any ring quest in Lord of the Rings. Like, kind of people are going, they are battling demons, they are facing heartbreak and joy, they are having to be a team, it's a business, and we are supposed to be silent about this. It's seen as disloyal to talk about a marriage. And I just wanted to throw all these doors open and go, you know, this, the format of the book is 24 hours in the life of an average middle-aged woman and just go, you know, what is happening every hour? What are you dealing with every hour? How are you making this work? What is making it difficult? And to just be to be honest about that process, which, you know, once you realize that you're writing about something that other people generally haven't written about, it's so exciting because anything you put in there, people are going, yep, that was me. Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. I didn't even know you were allowed to say that. When I was talking about sex in a long-term relationship, even I was going, am I allowed to talk? Is that disloyal to my husband? Like kind of, am I breaking some kind of marriage code to talk about how difficult it is to keep an exciting sex life going over 25 years? And all the advice that you're given it's generally for a younger woman. It's all the, you know, have you tried spanking, you know, <laughs> sending texts? Well, first of all, if you and your husband, you know, a long-term partner are spanking each other and you've got children in the house, you will hear a scared voice from the other side of the door going, what's that clapping sound? Mummy, I'm scared. And if you're sending each other illicit texts, then almost every family has it that their phone is linked to another device in the house. And suddenly you've got a scared child who's watching Peppa Pig going, mummy, a text's come up and it looks like it's two hands pressed together. And you're like, no, I shouldn't have sent that Belfie. That was wrong. So it's, you know, and, and, you know, we, you know, particularly women are supposed to be endlessly inventive and questing in, in their sex lives and, you know, bringing grapefruit and whips and all this kind of stuff. And that completely misunderstands the average heterosexual man who's just happy to have some sex. You really don't need, if, if there's a naked lady in front of him and he's got 20 minutes with her, more than nine times out of 10, he's going to be perfectly happy with that. But instead, we're kind of like, oh, I need to put the spice back into my relationship. If you try and put your spice back into a 25-year-long relationship, it's going to be terrifying. We tried role play. And I was like, could you be a naughty, sexy pirate? And like, if my husband were a famous character actor, you know, if it was like, I don't know, James Gandolfini or Mark Rylance, then maybe he would have workshopped that character and it would have been good. But the accent was questionable. He kept saying, what's my motivation? Uh, I was, you know, it's, you can't suddenly start being sexy pirates 25 years into a relationship and you don't need to, you don't need to just have a normal, straightforward shag. It's perfectly fine. I relieve you all of the responsibility of having an exciting sex life. Just 25 minutes, saying thank you to each other at the end of it, on with the rest of the day. It's done. Everyone can take their eye patches and just chuck them over their shoulders. It's, it's you don't need the cutlass. You don't need no the problem. camera. No it's not going to work. <laughs> so, Caitlin, how did you even get into writing? Like, how did you begin this journey in your life? Did you know you wanted to write? Like, what? How did this all happen for you? Yeah, I was. I read a lot as a kid. My parents were very clever. I mean, they're generally terrible parents, but they had. They did one clever thing. They had a suitcase under the bed that was full of like classic children's books, like Anne of Green Gable and Little Women and stuff. And from a very early age, they were like, you're too young to read those yet. Like kind of, you know, when you're old enough, you'll be able to read these. And so made books seem like this incredible thing that one day I'd be clever and special enough to read. So when they finally opened the suitcase and went, you can read these, it was like, oh, okay, now I feel honored. This is the good stuff. So usually if you're a writer, you're a reader. And I think it's a bit like the digestive system. If you put enough words into you, then you probably start pooing them out. I don't want to give away the magic of what writing is, but like... You know, you read something and you either go, I disagree with that. Now I've got something to write. Or you go, 
they were so right. And when it happened to me, it was like this, I want to write my version of this. So you, you're kind of, you know, to be chin strokey for a minute, if you're a writer, you're in a constant conversation with all the other writers that have been before and you just want to join in their game and go, I can do that too. So we were home educated, we didn't go to school. And by the time I was 13, it was very apparent to me that with no qualifications and no schooling, I would probably have to work out what my job would be and then get on with it on my own. So I just started writing a book when I was 13 and I finished it when I was 15. It's a children's novel and sent it off and it got published. And there were a couple of interviews with me at the time because it was like a teenager has written a book. And the Times newspaper saw the interview and asked me if I wanted to write some pieces for them. And I said, yes. And they gave me a column. By that point, I was 17. They gave me a column, which I now realize isn't the normal way that you get um, a job. (laughs) And I was also working as a rock critic on a a music magazine at the time. So by night, we're still living at home. So by night, I'd be at a gig smoking cigarettes and drinking cider and hanging out with rock stars. And then sort of at half past 11, I'd creep home, get into the bed that I shared with my little brother because we didn't have our own beds. And then sort of wake up in the morning, write the review, look after the kids. And then that night go off and be in the world of rock and roll again. So yeah, it was, it was quite unusual. It's not a template that I think anybody else could follow. So it's kind of useless me telling you, but that is, that is how I did it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's useless. It's like highly entertaining. And then what came next? So you had the column and then what? So I had my kids really, really young. I'd met my husband when I was 17. Thank God that was one problem that I didn't have to worry about. And so we had kids really young. I was like 24 and then 26. So I was just writing the column on the Times for 10 years. And as soon, I was like, I swear, because you don't realize how long a minute or an hour or a day is until you have to sit under a child and not move. And so the first thing that I learned from breastfeeding other than it hurt was that like, as soon as I didn't have to have a sleeping child on me, I would do stuff. I was not going to waste any more time. So the first day the youngest one went to school, I was like, right, I'm going to do stuff. So that was when I started writing How to Be a Woman, which was sort of trying to explain feminism to a young generation and tell sort of dirty, funny stories about life. And then I did a couple of novels. I did a TV series about my childhood. Just on the film of one of the novels, How to, be, How to Build a Girl, starring Beanie Feldstein, who is an absolute delight. She plays the teenage me. She's better at being the teenage me than I was. <laughs> and we have a little WhatsApp group when, whenever we see, she's as obsessed with dogs as I am. So whenever we see a cute dog, we take pictures of it and send them to each other like, oh, this is a good dog. Look at this noble fellow. This is an adorable one. And yeah, it's, it's a pretty sweet life, I have to say. At 45, I'm like, wow, if I could tell my 13-year-old self that it was going to work out this well, I'd be pretty pleased. I would be certainly less anxious. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any advice to people who might not have this fall into their lap? Although that, yeah. Yes. No, no, no. Well, it's, not it's, that you didn't earn it. Not that you haven't earned it. You're no, incredibly no, talented. No, I was so lucky. Well, it was, it was a much easier time to be a writer and get paid. Everyone can be a writer now because you can blog, but you don't get paid for it. So there's necessarily a class barrier now. If you've got, if you're young and you've got parents who can support you, you can write full-time. You can blog full-time. If you have to get a job, then you're not going to start writing till you get home, probably quite tired, and start writing. So there's an immediate class and economic barrier put to writing these days, which is sad. But if you are a writer, then it's, it took me quite a while to realise that like, if you're writing what you think, so you look at the game and you go, oh, this is what everyone's writing about. That's what a column would look like or a book would look like. I should do something like that. And you're trying to, if you do that, you're trying to get into a very crowded field. And you're going to have to be absolutely excellent to compete with people who are already established and have contacts. But if you do this thing where you turn 180 degrees and go, what aren't people writing about? Where's the gap in the market? Like, where is the silence? Where are the taboos? Where are the stories that aren't being told? Suddenly, 
you're going to be more in demand. You've got more of a market value because no one else is doing that. And that's where things like things that would often be seen as a disadvantage, like being of colour, being LGBTQ, you know, writing about middle age, whatever it is, become an advantage because those are areas that are not serviced that well. We don't have that many writers talking about those things or those kind of lives. So once you see that what you might perceive as your weakness is actually your strength, then hopefully that will give you the courage to go, no, I would be doing something useful if I write. And that's a lovely thing to think of as a writer. You're not being indulgent. You know, it's not like writing poetry and hoping people will cry. You're going, no, I'm being useful. I'm going to tell people things. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to try and work out why these things have happened. Like that's, I have a purpose now. And once you feel as a writer that you've got a purpose, so long as you are determined enough, you will find an audience in the end because people like you will need to hear your stories because no one else is telling them. So that would be my, you've got to be resilient, but whatever you think is your weakness is your strength. And people need what you are going to be writing about. Love that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am such a huge fan of yours. Loved this book. Like, can't thank you enough. Um, it's just been such an awesome experience talking to you. You are absolutely fantastic. And I love your bookshelf. It's giving me such joy. It's my eyes are so happy looking at it. Thank you so much, darling. You're welcome. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day book blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.